This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode of Jews You Should Know, continuing our mini-series featuring experts in the fields of mindfulness, Jewish spirituality, psychology more broadly. This week featuring a fascinating woman named Chaya Hinda Allen, who from the suburbs of Jerusalem in her home in Beitar, counsels hundreds if not thousands of women around the world in a discipline she calls Jewish positive thinking, bringing together Jewish sources, guided imagery, and much, much more in helping primarily women, although also couples and others more broadly, access the essence of their connection to God and transform their mindset and their emotional temperament through her various series and through the community that she has been building. I think many people, again, women specifically, will find her example and her approach refreshing and uplifting. And you can listen in the interview and also check the show notes for ways that you can learn more about her work. Just one housekeeping note. Again, thank you to those who have been sharing and spreading the podcast to others. Really appreciate it. And now we've begun to become a little bit more active on Instagram and would greatly appreciate followers there. It's simple Jews you should know on Instagram, Jews you should know. That's spelled out fully as it is on all of our social media platforms, except Twitter, where it's Jews You Should Know with a U instead of Y-O-U, for reasons only known to Twitter itself. But otherwise, it's Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully, so please follow us on Instagram, as well as Facebook and other social media platforms. And now, to Beitar, Israel, for our conversation, recorded this past summer, but as relevant as ever, now, with Chaya Hinda Allen. We are here with Chaya Hinda Allen in the beautiful, beautiful town of Beitar Elite in the uh, Judean Hills, I believe. Uh, stunning views from the window here overlooking. Uh, she'll tell us maybe what we're overlooking. I'm not even entirely sure myself. Um, but Chaya Hinda, Hinda Allen, how are you? Thank you, Baruch Hashem. It's really, it is beautiful in here in Beitar. We're overlooking that you have Efrat and the Gush Etzion settlements. That we, that's what we could see over in the hills. The, the high the settlements in the hills are Jewish, and whatever you see in the valleys is not Jewish. That's how okay. it goes over here. Interesting. <laughs> so I guess that's your way of demar- demarcating. <laughs> um, and so y- you said, you told me before we got on on, uh, on camera over here or on uh, yeah. recording over here that you have been here for quite a long time, but uh, your accent betrays a British <laughs> origin. and. Uh, I met, I think maybe it was that your mother downstairs who I, who I met when I came in. Yes. Well, yes. Also with a British yeah, accent, yeah, which, which makes sense. So tell, us, tell me a little bit about where you're from, um, how you grew up, and uh, what your background was like. So I grew up in, uh, in a very small, warm Jewish community in, uh, in Liverpool, England. Liverpool. Uh, yeah. I just know about the soccer team or the football team. Of course, <laughs> of course. When people come from Liverpool, it's either, either the football team or the Beatles. Like that's what people know about Liverpool. And so I basically grew up in the shadow of the football team, you know. So, the <laughs> but um, but the community was very, very warm. I'm, I'm like related to half the people that I grew up with, and so my school was full of cousins, and and the community center was full of cousins, and I was always very just inv- naturally involved in the community. Um, and in a, you know, in a small town, uh, everyone feels important. Everyone feels that you can contribute, you can do something. So I was heavily involved in youth work, heavily involved in whatever was going on in the community. And there were lots of, um, lots of people who were cutting their teeth in education, came to Liverpool, um, grew in Liverpool, and then moved on to much bigger schools and, and, and bigger places. So we actually had a lot of very creative talent who came in impacted on the community and then went off. So we, we learned, even though we were kind of a small community, but we learned from very interesting personalities who went on then to, um, to major religious Jewish Any of them schools. who would be recognizable to people today? I don't today, know. Or? Rabbi Skalka went off to, to teach in um, 
again, a school that's just gone out of my head what it's called, but like a Carmel College, which, Carmel was, yeah. which, which recently closed, I believe, but he went on to be, to be a major force over there. Um, and so we just had some really uh, very, uh, again, creative, original educators who inspired me. Um, and also the, the community workers were also creative and original and they had all kinds of ideas and so part of one of their ideas was that there needed to be a pr like a youth presence on the on the uh, on the committee of the community center and so I was chosen to be one of the representatives of the youth on the on the on the meetings and um, sometimes I found myself just getting up and walking out because I felt like I didn't. I didn't want to hear a lot of the the in politics that was going on. Yeah. Um, I felt it wasn't my place, but I did learn a lot. Absolutely, and so I I just learned from the inside that you can't make everyone happy. Mm. Um, and so I, I don't even try to make everyone happy, but because I understand that that's in in Ju in Jewish communities, there are always going to be people who don't have all of their needs met. But you just have to try. Mm. And so that gave me kind of, I think, one up on anybody else that tried to step forward and do things. Because I didn't really, I didn't need to people please. Wow. Because I understood from very early on that you just do your best. You do what you could do. You try and help people. And just because we're disgruntled people, that doesn't mean you did something wrong necessarily. That's you a great just, gift that you have. Because yeah. I think so many people today, especially right. uh, Jews with their, you know, e eternal <laughs> guilt complexes. Right. And especially, I think, not that, you know. I can relate personally, but from the ones in my life, mm -hmm. Jewish women, right, um, who are really <laughs> trying to be a, a lot of things to a lot of people. That's right. Um, and often they themselves, you know, become the sacrifice in that right. in that process. And I'm sure we'll talk a little right. bit more about that. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, I've interviewed um, a couple, as I mentioned to you earlier, yeah. a couple of Brits uh -huh. in the last few days. And in the podcast release calendar, they may not come out, you know, one after the other in that direction. Yeah. But from my co conversations, um, and I've gotten a really interesting sort of history lesson in British, modern British Jewish history. Uh -huh. um, a lot, and particularly people who grew up in smaller mm. towns, uh, Leicester and Newcastle, yeah, places like right. that, uh -huh. um, places I hadn't really even heard right, of right. <laughs> until, until they said the names. Mm -hmm. So they described um, a, a community that was very traditional mm -hmm. um, and that was very organized. Um, you know, much more so than perhaps even in the United States where it's mm -hmm. so much larger uh, and so much more dispersed. Yeah. Was that your experience and was your family strictly observant or were they kind of just involved in the community and sort of traditional in that very British sense? Yeah, mostly traditional, um, uh, well, how do you call it, you know, um, like our shores always belong to the Orthodox shores right. and very much a part of that shore, my father was the treasurer for, of, the, of the local young Jewish education services for a long time and so, and my mother was always busy fundraising for different kinds of uh, charity organizations. So they, yeah, they're both very busy with the organized Jewish communities and so I got a lot of in-training, you know, from them as well. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, British tend to organize things there's a lot of systems in place a lot of you know very proper very proper <laughs> very proper a lot of organizers but again so I do ha definitely have a feel for the importance of what organization can do the the structure that we create really takes a lot off our shoulders and they can be very creative within that structure mm. so there were a lot of organizations a lot of different kind of youth organizations that were around and the community again was very um, everybody was um, again, of course, in all small communities, you have that non-judgmental kind of. Right. Everybody belongs. We're all part of the same community. You had people on very different ends of the spectrum of, of Jewish observance. Um, there was Bnei Akiva. There was also a Kolal, uh, right. a Kolal at the time, and there and there was a yeshiva that the the Rav had established. But there was also, you know, many people who didn't know a lot. Um, but mostly, every everybody got along yeah. and and contributed and. And received and went to the Jewish school and you know took advantage of the different uh, there were many different Jewish young like f for the youth different community activities that we right. could go with. that was one of the things that was really very organized about there was a, uh, a junior youth community group and there was a middle community group and then there was a seniors community group wow. and so we all went up and then there were many different kinds of skills that you could learn in these groups and I was very busy in the drama group I was always doing like two or three plays a year wow with a, there was wow. a tremendous fun set up so that was like my first exposure to the stage where I feel like <laughs> I just basically like 
lived on the stage since then but like uh, that was where I started doing plays like every year wow. over there and that was again part of the community but we did the backstage stuff and we did on the stage and we made all the signs and put the them costumes, around down. The props, everything yeah. everything everything and that was and the whole community would be involved in these, in these well, efforts so it was a lot of fun that's really cool a lot of fun that's really up. cool now at some point yeah. obviously uh, sounds like you made your way to Israel and quite yeah. a while ago at yeah. that did you come after high school for some kind of a gap year program? That's right. I came for a gap year program and ended up staying. Okay. That's right. Yeah. What kind of a gap year were you doing? I came, well, I came to study in the Vayu Shalim, actually. Ah, okay. That's what I came so to So you were coming to, to really to strengthen yourself Jewishly. Yeah, that's so what, what, what sort of precipitated that then? Um, I guess the fact that I just felt I didn't know enough. Ah. I, uh, I had, had, I mean, Baruch Hashem, there was a certain amount of Jewish education going on in Liverpool, but just not enough to satisfy what I felt that I needed for myself at the time. Well, were you confronted with a particular example or moment where that inadequacy became clear to you? Or because usually it's you know our knowledge is relative, right? So if if I'm a, if I'm involved and everyone else is involved in my community yeah. at a similar level, then I'm not yeah. usually going to feel that void. But if I all of a sudden meet somebody who's, oh, they're really not. Well, from when I was small, I was always the one that was learning out of, you know, over hours. Um, I was always seeking more. And so we had, there was like a, a Sunday school and an after school extra, I mean, we had a Jewish school and sure. we had Jewish lives in the school. But that was like a little bit. And then after school, so we had a few hours, uh, a couple times a weekend on Sundays where we learned more, but that still wasn't enough. And so I think I always knew that I was going to like devote myself more intensely to to, to learning and to so something that. innate. Yeah, that was something that I knew. When we were 14 years old, there was a program from our school that brought us to, to Eretz Yisrael uh, for a four-month program. Oh, wow, in Israel. And in Israel. So like a, a semester yeah. Yeah. abroad kind of thing? Yeah, and that was really, that was where my love of Eretz Yisrael was really ignited. Wow. And, um, and, I, and also just that a little bit of knowledge just wasn't enough, that I needed to really devote a lot more time to, to really... Um, to be absorbed in it, the the air of, of Israel, the the kind of passion for Torah and for Jewish living that yeah. that's here was just you know different. Right. There was a lot of passion for community work that you could find in England, but not for, not for what I was seeking. And right. So that's what I was getting in. Israel. So what did you find when you came for that year? Uh, a lot of a lot of truth, a lot of knowledge, a lot of inspiring teachers, tremendous inspiring teachers, um, inspiring communities. Uh, I just fell in love with Israel. I just couldn't leave. I just loved being Yushalayim. I loved being by the holy places. I uh, I loved breathing Judaism the way that it's lived here, where every season is just so naturally lived by everyone. Right. You're not out of sync in any way. It's completely. You can be as Jewish as you like. You can be intensely Jewish, and no one's gonna no one's gonna sneeze. You know, right. it's. Um, I really, really like that. Growing up in a small community where we were surrounded by many, many non-Jews, right. um, I did always feel out of a little self-conscious. Yeah, not so self, not self-conscious, but just not a, uh, just out of place. Uh -huh. That it wasn't my place, right? It and that any involvement was involvement in, in a in a place that wasn't truly mine. But here, every superimposed on you. Yes, here when I feel like I'm investing in the community, I'm investing in the community that's truly mine. Yeah. And the place that's, that's, that's mine, you know, that, I, that there's um, a momentum between me and the land and the people here. That's a synergy. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. Is, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's really beautiful. D going into that year, did you already have kind of designs on staying or was it really something that happened through that year? When I got on the plane, I knew. <laughs> it was Before you even landed. Before I, when I, I stepped on the plane, I'm like, Okay, I'm I'm going. Wow. Yeah, I, I kind of didn't think that I was going to come back to stay. That's a pretty uh, pretty bold or dramatic. It wasn't sentiment. A, yeah. it wasn't a it wasn't a decision. It was right. just like a knowledge. Wow. Yeah. Kind of a, a comfort that you had. Yeah. That's amazing. That was going to the right. Place. So after you did this year of study, yeah. obviously you had to start getting about the business of you know living quote unquote real life in a new country. So what did you do? Did you keep studying for a number of years, or did you go to a college, or did you like that? Did you I want to set up a home? I stayed for another year. I stayed for another year, and yeah. then I met my husband. Uh huh. And that was when we started to to live the real life. And was what was his background? His background was he came he came from Texas. Okay. Yeah. Don't mess with Texas. <laughs> 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 Texas and Liverpool. Yeah, so which part of Texas? Absolutely. He came from Austin. From Austin. Keep Austin weird, as they say. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Did he, go to, did he go to UT? Did he go to University of Texas? No, he went to he went to Chavitz Chaim. Ah, okay. He went to Chavitz Chaim. So his family then, was a religious family in Austin. Yeah, and then they, and then he came to he came here. He came to Israel, and he was learning in yeshiva here at the time. Wow. And uh, and he was learning in a yeshiva that was run under the auspices of the Boston Rebbe at okay. the time. And so he in Harnof. He yeah, and he graduated to, to towards Hasidus. And um, and I was also graduating towards Hasidus. There were not many Hasidim in Liverpool, as you can imagine. No, it's not, not <laughs> except the local Chabad Shaliach. How is it? Except for maybe, <laughs> except for maybe the uh, the soccer fans who were, who <laughs> right, were very Hasidim, passionate, right. you know. Right. So there was a the local fandom. <laughs> right. So he was becoming. He became Hasidic, and and I was definitely uh, a good candidate for. For Hasidic, what about right? Hasidic? This Hasidic flavor yeah. of Judaism, because first of all, I think a lot of people, you know, sort of conflate Hasidism with you know a very religious life, mm. but people don't always understand that it's not just that. It's it is a very religious yes. or pious life, yeah. but it has certain elements that define it or mark it as Hasidic. So, yes. what were those elements, and what what of them spoke to you? Well, absolutely, the optimism. Hmm. Optimism based on the goodness of the Jewish soul, that it can always find its way back, that it can always go higher, that nothing can limit it, uh, the tremendous simcha that is the, the essence of the Jewish soul, that we, we tend to sort of lose sight of because of so many tragedies and sadness that, that exist in the world, but the essence of the soul is actually happiness. The Torah says, the Pasuk says, there's a verse that says that, that there's a tremendous happiness with Hashem, and whilst we may not understand, we don't understand exactly what that could mean, but what, what is an instruction for us is that this happiness that's with Hashem is actually essentially part of our own souls. Mm. And um, especially in a world where there's so much confusion, I remember I used to think that the only real honest approach was dis depression. Meaning the world is so right. tragic, that our lives are so sometimes difficult that if you really want to be honest about things, like you just have to be depressed because right. that happiness was kind of a repression. Exactly, happiness is just like a pretense. Happiness is just like uh, shallow. But after learning in the Torah of the the Baal Shem Tov and this is uh, you know the Talmudim of this and the students of the Baal Shem Tov is what we understand is that the essence of the soul is actually happiness, and that the deepest response to anything is happiness, because. The neshama is always attached to the source, which is Hashem, mm. and that attachment in itself is a is a tremendous source of happiness. And nothing, no matter how how big and terrible it is, can can separate that if we don't let it. And um, and so that really captured my imagination. I think this approach to, to yeah. optimism and happiness exactly that you were kind of seeking yes. uh, a, a framework to understand life in those terms. Right. It gave me an answer. It gave me a lot of answers um, that I didn't think that we were allowed to be happy. Like, how can you allow yourself to be happy, really? How can you allow yourself to hope when there's so much misery and pain around? Um, felt almost guilty yeah, being happy, exactly. kind of like as guilty a being insensitivity happy. to the pain in the world. Exactly. And I remember that, um, I remember, I know many people can remember what happened with Nachshon Waxman, that terrible yes, story when he was captured. And that... 94, maybe that was 1994? It could have been. I, was I, school, I was, I was yeah. a right. So I was a young married lady, and I was. I remember being terribly, like, really depressed yes. after that. Uh, after that happened, um, and I really needed to understand more about it. And again, looking into it after that helped me to. Um, I I was guilty feeling happy. I was guilty try like enjoying anything at that time yeah. because it felt it felt really wrong. But again, once we understand. Every soul has a mission. Every every one of us has our own life plan. Every one of us can achieve that which we are sent into the world to achieve. And he, in his lifetime, I'm talking about Nashan Hashem in Hashem should you know uh, avenge his blood. Um, he united a lot of people at that time, right. and he brought out uh, a tremendous amount of faith on behalf of his parents and community. And so, even very tragic episodes fulfill in some way some purpose yeah um, and so when we look into our own lives and the lives of those around us we can find that purpose and that meaning and we can draw ourselves back to the faith that we have that our, our souls feel that faith but we're not always tuned into it and it's very interesting 
but this is this is a major major point that again for me was a really turning point when I learned this. The Pesetzner Rebbe, who was um, he died Al Kiddush Hashem in the Holocaust in the Warsaw Ghetto. Holocaust, in the Warsaw Ghetto. So he gave a speech. He gave a, a class in Shur at Russia. Um, this was during Pesach of 1941. Talking yeah. about in the middle of the Second World War, the middle of the Holocaust in Warsaw. And he said that people naturally feel their faith when things are going well. Mm. But when people have trouble, then they start to have questions. And he said, he explained like this, that, um, uh, that um, faith, emuna, is a little bit like nevuah, like prophecy. Hmm. Meaning prophecy is an experience of the presence of the Creator of, of Hashem. And emuna, faith, is also in, on a much lower level, but it's an experience of, it's kind of knowing Hashem. He said that can only be done when a person is happy, just as pre- prophecy can mm-hmm. only. Prophecy can only be experienced by a person who is besim, who is happy. And so faith can also only be experienced by a person who is happy. Interesting. Interesting. And so that helped me to understand that not only is happiness um, not to be restrained from in times of trouble, but we specifically have to strengthen ourselves in happiness in order not to lose our faith. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's such a fine line, I think, between, you know, on the one hand, we want to, as you, as you say, mm-hmm. embrace this ability to be happy and not to feel constrained that, you know, there's so much pain in the world, how can I be happy? Yeah. Yet at the same time, not to become callous right. or, you know, desensitized mm-hmm. to the, the pain of others, uh, sometimes others in our immediate you know, proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you kind of balance those two poles? Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, what a lot of people ask me about is what can we do like with other people in my life? Like I feel like I have a mood, but I have faith, I have happiness. How can I give that to another person? I want to like tell them about faith. I want to tell them about things. Right. So I, what I usually share is that we cannot tell a person anything. Right. If a person is in pain, you, can't, you don't go dancing over to them and try and get right. them to dance. All you can do is go and be with them wherever they are. So we need to have our own happiness within ourselves. And what does happiness mean? Revolbi says happiness means connection to Hashem, means re- connecting to the deep part within ourselves, which is the part of Hashem within us. Rev Shimshafal Hirsch says that happiness means tzmicha. Simcha is related grammatically to tzmicha, to growth. When we feel that we're growing, then we can feel a happiness and satisfaction in what we're doing. So we can have happiness for ourselves and it doesn't preclude sharing somebody else's pain. Pain is not the opposite of happiness. Mm. As a woman in childbirth will say, she will not be sad even if she's not in pain. And if we would push her, she would admit that she was happy just going through this. So pain is actually the precursor of all good. Lufum Tzara Agra is a statement of, of, of Chazal that according to the pain is the reward that when we put effort in, when we drive, drive ourselves to, to, to some goal, we feel satisfaction that we're doing something that's meaningful. And so the only problem with pain is if we feel it's meaningless. Mm. Meaningless pain could, could drive a person out of their mind. But mm. pain that has a purpose, is, uh, is actually a source of happiness because many people prepare to push themselves in the gym, you know, deprive themselves of delicacies in order to get the reward of losing weight, feeling good, being healthy, whatever it is. We're prepared to put in a tremendous amount of pain in order to get really good rewards and then we feel purpose, we feel satisfied with that. And so pain is not frightening and pain is not, doesn't mean something's going wrong. I actually say that the world says that um, in invention, that no, necessity is the mother of invention, but yes. I say pain is the mother of invention. Interesting. But it's only pain that really motivates us to, to do anything. It's that crucible, yeah. Yeah, that's why, that's why we do something, is because we're in pain, we want to move out of that pain right. into, into something else. So if we have a person who's in pain, we're not going to go and spew all the theory at them, we're going to go and sit with them. And Rav Simchavasaman himself said that if you want to teach someone faith and trust, we have to be so full of it ourselves that it will spill over to them. Yeah. And so we don't have to say anything. But if we just go and sit with a person who is in pain, and we, if we do have that faith and trust, it will, from heart to heart, there'll be a communication. We don't have to say anything. Mm. So we can be happy ourselves. It doesn't mean that I don't care about you. I can care deeply about another person whilst maintaining my own happiness because my happiness is together with my faith and trust that there is a purpose 
in this person's pain. I'm not being cast of their pain, but I can give over the message to them. I know that right now this is agony. I know that this is going to pass for you and that there will be a purpose that will become clear to you in why you're going through this right now. Right. And so it depends, again, how intensely they're feeling the pain right now, but I'm not going to say anything. Right. I'm not going to give them any lectures. And the person's in pain, I'm just going to sit with them in the pain. Right. And there's a lot of wisdom, obviously, to the, the Jewish approach to yes. mourning. Yes. To just sit and exactly. be with someone and not, not exactly. initiate conversation. And also not to try to divert attention from that mourning by cracking jokes or talking about, you know, random other topics that would potentially actually distract, you know, the mourner. Uh, because, I guess, freedom comes only through the pain. That you, you've touched on something very, very important. People tend to distract themselves out of their pain and therefore never deal with their problems. And they think that a, a happy, positive approach means denying whatever yeah. they're going through. And I say on the contrary, only through, first of all, fully receiving what we have, understanding what it is that we have. I definitely use the word receiving, not accepting. People tend to talk about accepting. Mm. I don't accept anything. We receive what we have, we understand what we have, and we look forward to future change and development. We look forward to the, the time when this particular pain will show how temporary it was, and we look forward to the future, but we don't deny it. Right. And we look, we look at what's missing in the present situation. We look at what the pain is, only through fully recognizing that, then we can move forward. So what do you yeah. think is the, the cost of denial? Absolute failure. We'll never move forward in anything as long as we're denying it or as long as we're distracting ourselves. Even though on the surface a person may feel temporarily like they're... Right, absolutely. We would well. say to me, she, she said to me, Chai Hinda, you know, until you came along, I was very happy. I, ha I mean, I, I had a problem and I pushed it down. I right. had a problem and I just pushed it now down. I'm miserable. And now I'm miserable. And now I have to deal with them all. I said, you know, I'm saving your life. You know, how, right. how far can you keep pushing things down? Right. At a certain point, you pop. Right. And that's what happens to so many women, is that they just stuffed it all down and they're so busy denying what's going on and distracting themselves with weapons of mass distraction, right. is what we call them, right? They're so busy distracting themselves that they don't deal with it and they don't know why. They're anxious, they can't sleep, they're popping pills, they're, 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 not, they're not satisfied with their relationships, there's so much falling apart and they don't know why, because the, the essence of themselves is missing, yeah. because they've pushed themselves down. Right, and then that also leads, I think, to a lot of codependency right. that exists, and probably you know many people, women again, particularly, yeah. maybe disposed to that yes. uh, when it comes yes. to overpleasing and right. exactly. and enmeshment and all those kinds of things Absolutely. that come with not being authentically in touch with one's true experience. Absolutely, um, absolutely. In fact, it's very, very interesting. I find this. I speak with women who are eighteen and nineteen. And I'm speaking with women in the sixties. And I'm finding the same question comes up sometimes. And that is, there's a feeling of inner emptiness mm. and trying to fill it from other people. Playing a role. Yeah, so when we talk about the 18-year-old, she hates herself because she's so needy and she doesn't want to need other people. I'm talking about to the 65-year-old on her second marriage who didn't get it in her first marriage and now she's, she wants to know how can she succeed in her second marriage without pulling him too much because she, she never learned how to deal with the fact that she is needy within herself and she's always been trying to get it from other people and so what we need to learn as women whatever stage we're at is how to understand that Hashem created us because he wants us to turn to him mm. and the other people who are in our lives are important and they contribute tremendous amount but ultimately the only real deep emotional satisfaction that we can get in this world is going to be through turning to the source of everything right and I want I want to I want to ask you another question about this, yeah. and then I want to go backwards a little bit okay. to get a sense of, sure. of what you've actually done with all these ideas, okay. um, and professionally and so forth. Yeah. But just while we're on the subject, yeah. you know that message that, that you've just sort of articulated yeah. seems to me to be often at odds with much of what, at least again from my sort of bird's eye view, mm -hmm. uh, with with much of what women and particularly religious women are fed, are educated with uh, throughout their their childhood where so much relies on that you know, that ultimate connection to the relationships with a husband with children that those become defining uh, forces mm -hmm. and that become you know an ultimate giver and so how do you help you know women reconcile those two ideas where on the one hand you're saying really you need to be complete within you need to turn to god and that is your primary relationship and yet they may have been told for 20 
30 or 80 years that your primary relationship is is this husband or is are these children mm -hmm. and you are meant to sort of sublimate yourself and almost sort of lose yourself in to that and to the, to the degree that you can do that is the degree to which you are a successful mm -hmm. Jewish woman. Mm -hmm. In order to be able to give, woman has to have from where to give it. And many, many women are running on empty because they've been taught to give and give and give and be mavata and give and give and give, but they don't know where to get it from. And they're looking around and they're saying, well, who is going to be giving to me? Men are tremendous in their role. Nurturing has not necessarily been associated with the male role. And so women need a tremendous amount of nurturing. And if a woman doesn't understand that about herself and she expects to receive it from her husband, then she's, she's going to at some point find the bottom falling out and she's, going to not have, she's not going to be able to stand up anymore. So if we talk about the primary relationship in a woman's life of being Hashem, that he can give to her, we tend, when we read in the five books of the Torah, we read in the Siddur, we read words of prayer or words of the, of the, of the verses, a person, I know that that's how I used to read it when I was a girl. Right. We don't necessarily re read it as a personal instruction to ourselves. Right. Um, and even if we do, we think, well, this, this is really not for me. This is for people who are more religious than me, or this is for people who are, who are like really into it or whatever. Like, this is not necessarily speaking to me. The whole Torah, we just a couple of weeks ago reading in, in Parshish Akev, and at the end it says, love Hashem and cling to Him and, and go in His ways. And that's the whole Torah, like this is, this is the mitzvah you have to keep. And wow, that's a big deal. So the Nesipa Shalom, the, the previous Salam Rebbe, he says, of course, there are many, many different levels of a person loving Hashem. And what's the difference between loving Hashem and clinging to Him? Why do you need two different mitzvahs? He says, because loving Hashem is a feeling, but this devek is clinging to Hashem means 24-7. Hasmada doing this all the time. Now, he says, of course, you can't expect everyone to do that, but you can expect everyone to try. And that's what he says that mitzvah means. It means try to attach yourself to Shem 24-7. And the Mephoshim on, on Shir Hashirim, on the Song of Songs of Shlomo Melech of Solomon said that every relationship in this world is an analogy to help us to understand the primary relationship right. between us and Hashem. Right. So for men as well as women, the primary relationship in our lives is supposed to be Hashem. Right. And every mitzvah that we do and all the learning that we do and every relationship that we have is supposed to be a stepping stone to help us to understand our relationship with Hashem. So when I deal with single women who are in their 40s and they're trying to understand why Hashem hasn't given them a soulmate, or I'm dealing with a widow who's who has lost her husband 19 years and still feels the pain that he's not there and she throws a photograph of him on the wall every day. If she's only got her husband in her life, then what, then what does she have? Clearly, if Hashem keeps women waiting so long for husbands or takes them away or gives them husbands who are not helpful emotionally, it's not because every woman has to have us as a primary relationship. That's, that's clearly not where right. it's at. It's because Hashem is giving us challenges, relationships in our lives in order that we get the message. I'm the primary relationship. We as women, we want to nurture, we want to give and when we have people who will receive that nurturing and love, husbands, children, siblings, grandchildren, it's wonderful and we are givers and we want to be givers. The ideal, the halach to bidrav, again going in Hashem's ways is one of those three mitzvahs that's mentioned at the end of, of the parsha of Akev, is going in His ways means to give unconditionally means to give him a place of strength, to give him a place where the opposite of what you're saying, enmeshment and um, codependency. codependency. I give because I'm coming from a place of empowering giving. I can give because I want to give, not because I need something back from you. Right. If I give because I need something back from you, then we're in a very, very messy game. And then, I'll, oh, then I'm going to stop giving if you're not giving me enough. But if I'm giving to you just because I'm a giver because Hashem gives to me and I'm giving to you. And if you're having a bad day today, I'm not going to stop giving to you today. And I'm going to continue giving in the hope that one day my unconditional love will give you so much support that you'll be able to start giving back to me. And when one can give from that place of strength, even dysfunctional husbands can come around. Even husbands who are addicts can come around eventually and, and, and hopefully. Not all of them will become the greatest nurturing, you know, wonderful husband, but they can become gradually much more functional. Right. And even a five to ten percent improvement 
is is a whole lot better than where they were before. Is there a danger in there of the woman thinking that she's gonna you know change him and and you know and giving him a uh, an out to not have to do his own work to repair or rebuild himself? Part of codependency is I have to change you. Right. And so when a woman can love un unconditionally because she's loved by Hashem. This is the model I, I like to give over to women. Hashem loves me and I turn to Him for all of my needs because He's the source of everything. Other people who Hashem chooses to, to, to give me, let's say, it's easy to understand in terms of finances. If sure. I have a job, okay, the boss is giving me payment. Right. So, but who, where's the source of that payment? Do I think it's the boss or do I know that it's Hashem? So Hashem chooses who He sends His money through he could give it through daddy, he could give it through the boss, he could give it through uh, some national insurance company or whatever it is, but he ch Hashem is the boss of the money and he chooses who he gives it through. The same is with love. Hashem has all the love in the world. No love can exist independent of Hashem. Hashem chooses who he gives it through. He could give it through a husband, he could give it through children, he could give it through dear friends, he could give it through grandparents. Whoever Hashem, whoever steps in and chooses just as when it comes to, to, to the, the payslip. Whoever chooses to be the one paying, paying the money, they become the messenger. Whoever chooses to step in and be in that loving role, they are the messenger. So I was sitting with one woman who's a very difficult marriage. And she was saying to me, but I know you say that Hashem loves us, but I also need people in my life right. who are going to love Tangible, me. Tangible, yeah. Right? And so she was, she, one day she said she was just dabbling away. She said, Hashem, I really need something. I really need a person. And she said, she said her husband, no, her brother, lives very far away. And all of a sudden, like 10 minutes after she'd been davening, her brother called and said, I'm coming by, I just want to see you. And she, a brother who she'd been very close to growing up, who she hadn't seen for a long time, who lived, let's see, an, a long way away, came by, spent the whole afternoon with her, really gave a lot of encouragement and, 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 and love, you know, brotherly love. And she said, you know what, I really felt that that was Hashem sending me. Exactly, same with the love that I needed. So. Women would like to get it from the places where they would like to get it from. Right. That's not always Shem's plan. So do you think the education system, though, needs to be reformed or tweaked in a way that that becomes the primary relationship that is spoken about in those terms? Sarah Schneer, when she decided to teach Shir Hashirim to the girls of Bezakov, certainly had that intention. I don't know if, if we need to create a revolution. I think we need to go back to Sarah Schneer's model. Right. She was full of faith, full of trust, full of a relationship with the Kaddish Baruch She herself had a very difficult life, right? She herself was divorced, right. I think. Had right. no children. Didn't have children. Yeah. Right. She certainly turned to, to Hashem in her heart. And so it's about educating Jewish women to turn to Hashem for all of their needs and knowing that we don't have to slap our needs out of other people. That's what the guilt trip is about. Right. I always say that the you know guilt is not a, is in, is a culturally Jewish response. It's not an authentically Jewish response. This, oh, I don't, you know, leave me in the dark. I don't need, you know, that's just a Passive aggressive. And yeah, <laughs> to trying to get other people to give me what I think they yeah. should be giving me. If a woman gets her needs met from Hashem, she doesn't have any claims on other people. Right. We educate our children because we want them to be, I always tell my children, I want you to be a mensch. Not because I need you to give me honor. I want you to be a person who can honor other people. Right. So it's not because I'm needing it from you. All my needs, I turn to Hashem. And these women who, whether they're 18, 25, 65, feeling needy within, we're very needy people. But that neediness doesn't have to be expressed towards the other people in our lives who may or may not be able to fulfill that. Right. But Hashem has everything. So if we turn the neediness to Hashem, He is going to answer. He's good for it. He has everything in the world. And not only all the money and all of the health, but all of the love, all of the attention, whatever we need, Hashem has it all. We have to learn how to wean ourselves of needing it from pe from specific people right. and giving it to Hashem and let Hashem choose how right. He's going to get it to us. Beautiful. Okay, so it was a wonderful digression. Yes. And I want to get back. So now, yes. you were here in Israel. You got married to this, yes. uh, this man from Texas. Yes. This uh, big... Uh, this, uh, from Texas. The, the, the yes. Hasidic cowboy. Yes. Uh, and that describes him very well. <laughs> yes, <they're wonderful. laughs> okay. I only met him for 30 seconds, but okay. So yes. you, I guess, settled uh, somewhere in, in Israel. And did you settle immediately where we are now in Beitar? We began in Harnav, where Mahasim was in Kola. Okay. With the uh, Boston Rebbe. Yeah. And after, after three 
after three years, we moved into our home in Beta, in Beta which was then a very, very much a fledgling very small. little community. And I very guess small. must have gotten a good deal back in, back then. And that's right. That's a great investment because nowadays that's it's right. quite expensive. That's um, right. Like yeah. all these towns start, you know, and eventually right. become unaffordable. Yeah. <laughs> but, we moved um, in like 27 years ago, which was, Beta is now turning 30 years old. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. It was a beautiful, beautiful on a hill. Yes. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And again, I come from a small town, small community. Yeah. And so for me, it was really a place so we could grow and flourish and give into the community. My husband taught Dafyomi Shir wow. for, for many, many years, over 10 years, Bokhasha, I think, maybe 15 years. He's he finished Shas twice with his Dafyomi Shir. And I've been involved in setting up the local chapter of Nishay here. Right. And so that was really... Which is amazing to think of that you could actually make a contribution in a place right. like this because somebody moving here now would just be a number and, you know, in most cases... Maybe. I mean, Beitar is still... There's still places for people to contribute. Then like it was like, it was nothing. Right. We really had to It just seems so big now, you know. Right, right. Uh, now there are hundreds of English-speaking families. Then when we when we moved in, there were maybe 25, 30 English-speaking families. Yeah. And and as Beitar grew, so the community grew, so the Nishay grew, and that was where my my local community work really began. Then after right. I got married here in Beitar, as it grew, and and I learned a lot. And again, without guilt, without. Yeah. I remember one particular day we put on an event, and the door was locked, and and and. There were different kinds of mistakes, and people were saying, "Well, who's in charge?" I'm like, "I'm in charge." They're like, "No, who, like, who, who's, who can we turn to?" I'm like, "No, I'm the one that made the mistake." And they're trying to blame somebody else. Right, everyone wants to blame. Like, yeah, everyone else finds else to blame. I'm like, "I'm okay with being the one that made the mistake." Yeah, in, like in position. It's a real self-esteem. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Next time I'll get it better. But this time I didn't realize who I had to call first. It's okay. And they're like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> They're not going to lynch you. You're right there. It's okay. Yeah. Right. There's no one else to blame. <laughs> so, what did you start to yes. do? Obviously, you developed an interest in counseling people, um, inspiring, encouraging people. Not yeah. sure quite how to describe right. it. Um, yeah. How did that develop and and become sort of a career, a movement? Yeah. Um, tell me about the sort of the evolution of that whole process. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting when people ask me that. I, I never really gave a lot of thought to it. Um, I always knew when I was growing up that I would be involved somehow in in Jewish women's education in an informal way, like not in a schoolroom, but in right. some kind of informal Jewish education. Um, and I always saw myself teaching something, but I never knew what I was going to teach. I didn't know I, that was like the missing part. So I couldn't really start teaching until I knew what I was going to be <laughs> teaching. You know, but I knew it was going to be somehow, some way. Um, and then, again, through my work within the Jewish community in Beta, I, I saw myself in, in a very supporting role, um, just helping the, the people locally. And then, Baruch Hashem, as our children got bigger, and challenges got a lot bigger, yeah. you know, being a family, away from family, sure. in a new developing, developing city where there weren't many elders around to turn to, we had some major challenges. Mm. And I found that as much as I'd see myself as someone who could support other people, I was floundering when, I, when it came to some major challenges that were coming up with trying to just raise a regular Jewish family. Right. And so I really started to search for answers and I found myself sitting in a classroom, in a home, uh, listening to the Rabbi Sari Yosef. Okay. Um, she was talking about positive thinking, she was talking about guided imagery um, and how, how to use our inner imagination to create feelings. Hmm. And that for me was the missing piece because I have a very active imagination and I've never understood that I could guide my mind to where I wanted it to go rather than having it take me all kinds of crazy places. Right. And so I, I ended up, I had been very worried and frightened and stressed and anxious and guilt-ridden and worried and fearful, like all of Fear, this negativity yeah. um, that I brought upon myself because of my negative ways of thinking. When I tell people now that I used to be worried and fearful and stressed, they're like, no way, Chayin, like, it's not even You're real. You're the poster positive thinking, right? Only because I was so stressed and fearful and anxious. Well, that brings us to our point before exactly. going through the pain, right? Exactly. Imagine and if so, you had denied or repressed that. Right. You would never have arrived at this. Exactly. Moment. I just kept pushing it down, yeah. pushing it down, pushing it down. And so what I, what I learned from her was what Rav Dessler says is that if you want to change our feelings, there's only one way of doing it, and that's through Sireh Halev, which he calls pictures of the heart. Hmm. Now, I translate that slightly differently rather than Sireh in pictures as inner scenarios, because a picture is very visual, hmm. and not everybody's imagination works 
with a visual. But a scenario could be an audio. Uh, you're probably very audio, you do with audio <laughs> stuff, right? So audio things or or, or uh, people who, you know, very touchy for you. They want to have a, yeah. yeah, people are very sensitive. I have, a, I have a friend who's so slow. She talks about, I get that, I'm feeling the weight of this. You know, I'm really, I like the feel of it. She uses all of this really sensory language because that's how she experiences things. She's not a visual person, you know. So everybody has, the, their imagination works in different ways. So I like to call it a scenario. But we create for ourselves, within ourselves, how we view things, how we understand things, our own inner scenarios, our own inner representation of things. And that's where we then live. And if we create for ourselves inner scenarios that are frightening, um, there's no more truth to them than a positive scenario, but it feels true because it, it comes from within ourselves. I've spoken to so many women who find that it feels false to, to conjure up some kind of new positive right. scenario because it didn't come from me. There was one woman who was really worried about her daughter not getting married, and I was trying to work with her, and after a couple of months, I said, I know that you're not listening to the guided images that I'm giving you in the homework. What you're not doing, she said, how do you know I'm not, li you know, I'm not listening? I said, I can tell by the way you're talking that you're still immersed in fear and worry. And you wouldn't be if you were doing the homework I gave you. <laughs> so she said, I, I can't imagine a scene in the future. I said, I know that you're imagining a scene 40 years from now where your daughter is an old spinster. And that's your mind. She said to me, how do you know? How do you know that's what I'm imagining? I said, because I see it in your face and I hear it in the words that you're saying. I know that you're imagining all that. She says, but that comes from myself. It doesn't feel fake. Right. And so we believe that, but there's no reason to believe that. We're taught that at the giving of the Torah, um, Moses told the people of Israel when he was going to come back. And he was late. He was delayed. Right. And at that time, the Yetzirah, the Satan, went around and told everybody that Moses had died. Right. And they, they said, no, 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 he didn't die. He said, they said yeah, 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 he died. And they said, no, 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 he didn't die. And then... The Saturn was given permission at that time to screen a massive sound and light show of the funeral of Moses taking place right. in heaven. And then they believed it and they ran off and did it the became visceral. Right. So the point is that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination within us, is given permission to screen completely false sound and light shows in order to give us the opportunity to overcome them. They're not truth, but they, could, they, they become our truth if we buy them. One of the teachings that I find very powerful for with women. Do we have, how much time do we have? No, no, okay. Very powerful tool is the drug, the the rug salesman. The drug salesman. The rug salesman. That's the denial and That was a distraction. Slip. Okay. Yeah. The rug salesman. So when we first moved to Beta, we lived in an apartment four flights up, and this rug salesman would come along and he would slap his rugs up, and then he would like burst into the house and put it in the middle of the living room and say, "Look how beautiful my rug is on the floor." You have to buy you it now. You have to buy it now, exactly. And you feel guilty. The guy stepped it up four flights of stairs, and I'm like, "I don't really want a rug," you know, like I didn't really want a rug. He says, "No, no, no. Look how beautiful it is. It fits. It suits your house." Okay. So I say to women, "When this rug is on the floor in my living room, does it belong to me?" like no it doesn't belong to you I said so at what point does it belong to me when you decide to buy it then it's yours I said okay so also a thought that spread out in my mind mm. and it's a horror there's Saturn my inflation system but this is your thought it right. looks so perfect in your mind look how it fits it doesn't it's still not mine until I buy the rug until I say I want to think that thought until I say this thought is mine if it's not mine then take take it out I'm not buying the rug so we have to tell this rug salesman over and over again, it doesn't matter how many times a day, I'm not interested in the rug. I'm not buying your wares. And so even a thought that we find in our mind, women find that they identify with their own thoughts as if it's a part of themselves. It's not ours. Thoughts can come from all kinds of places. Right. They could just drop into our minds. They're not ours and we don't have to own them. We can just let them go. So the major, to what's then the major tool for not letting it in? Solomon Hamet, this king, gave us this piece of advice. He says, Lev tov mishte tamid. Person with a good heart is at a constant feast. So what would happen if the rug salesman comes along and he knocks on the door and he opens it and he finds there's a, a bris suda going on. There's a whole family celebrating. In the, he says, okay, I'll come back another day. Right. He comes back at night. There's a shiver brach is happening. Okay, no way to go in with the rug today. So he goes somewhere right. else. Okay, comes back the next day. There's a bar mitzvah. Okay. <laughs> wow. This place is really this happening. There's a busy family. There's a busy family. Okay. He tries his, his luck another few times. There's a seum. You get the picture. Every time he comes, there's no some the major. <laughs> he's not going to come back anymore. Yeah. Leave Tov, having a good heart, is at a constant feast. When we fill ourselves with 
opportunities for constant feast. And again, I say Hashem has created a smorg of wonderful feelings that we can like we can live. We can live with love, we can live with faith, we can live with trust, we can live with hope, we can live with forgiveness, we can live with friendship, mm. we can live with tremendous happiness. There's so there's a the gamut of, of positive human emotions we can choose to live with all of them and when we're, we're, we have that leave told generosity looking for the good in other people and looking for the good for other people when we live with that it's a mishnah time there's a constant feast and the rug salesman he doesn't can't get his foot in the door because whenever he comes we're busy yeah and so that's how we fill ourselves we tend to think about erecting boundaries as keeping things out but what we have to do is erect the boundaries around our minds so that we keep all the good in all of the good stays in and we have to understand ways to acquire more and more good fill ourselves with the good and then we're so full that it's just going to spill out over us and the negative is not going to have its way in we don't, we're not going to have to work so hard on those uh right on, on keeping out the negative when there's so much good being generated so now once you had gone through this this sort of renaissance of your own okay. so yeah. you started finding ways to share this with others and how did okay, it become so formalized right okay so i that was a realization that I, that I, that particular point is what I really learned from the Rabbi Sari Yosef. And then I wanted to share what I now understood as, this is how Hashem wants us to feel. Hashem wants us to, the creator of the world created us. He wants us to feel love and happiness and hope and trust. He wants us to feel these feelings. And so I wanted to share this with this idea of using guided imagery of, of creating our inner scenarios to help us feel these kinds of feelings I want to share this with English speaking women this was in, like in, in, in a little home in B'nai Brak in right, Hebrew. Hebrew, and I was like this has to be available to the world women need to know this Jewish women around the world need to know this and so I asked her could I share some of the teachings with, my, with other people she said sure she gave me permission to do that and I was giving her a percentage we, went into, we made a business deal together and I invited, I said, I, I begged actually five friends, I said, just come and listen to me. So three of them came, <laughs> two of them couldn't be bothered. The three that came brought another two friends with. I ended up with like five women who basically just threw questions at me the whole time. And whenever I asked, I opened my mouth, I said, how do you know that? Where does it say? What are you talking about? And I realized, okay, I need a lot more sources. I need a right. lot more information. So my husband and I, for the, ne for the next two years really, went on a search. We asked a lot of questions. Rav Hart Shlita of, of um, Umunis Israel here in, in, uh, in Beitar helped us a lot. He really helped us to find a lot of sources that we were looking for. There are many uh, other people that we asked. Rav Barzovsky was our neighbor down the street. Uh, he's a grandson of the Nesiv Shalom, of the previous Slonim Rebbe. He also helped us a lot in answering a lot of questions. And we really went on a search to answer that question. Like, how does Hashem want us to feel and how does He want us to get there? And the Musa leaders of Yusuf, Salanta talks about using guided imagery and how we have to use our imagination in order to create things. And Rav Desta brought that down to the previous generation. So much of the teachings of Hasidus and of the Musa movement right. are about how to use our minds in order to become the people that we want to become. Um, and so we, we, I started again with that, those five women, whilst they fought me Every, every minute but the word got out that something was something was interesting here and so after they finished the, like, the first series with me I got a bunch of calls from women who wanted to pay me to take a uh, wow. series and so I gave another to her and you know you're onto something yeah, it's like seven women here in Beitar and then I wrote up uh, I wrote up something for, for, for a magazine and as a result of that I got women who were interested in a teleconference a woman in Baltimore, a woman uh. in Canada, a woman in Australia like I, I had also just seven women on a teleconference and then I began to do live classes and teleconference classes and that was like maybe between 10 and 15 years ago wow. and it just really snowballed the live classes and the teleconference classes and one of the major aspects of how I grew and how the course grew was that I always had phone time with the women in the, one in the on series. One. So I was able to really hear from the women themselves, what are the issues, what are the problems, what's helping, what's making a difference. And so I was able to really understand what were the tools that I was sharing that were had major impact, and I was able to develop them more, what kind of Torahs that I was sharing, you know, the truth that Hashem has given us can really be transformative. When women understand that they're not just meant to be a nice piece of understanding but it can be applied to make a difference to our lives and so when when you read 
the words, you should love Hashem. What does this mean? Oh, that means you need to say the words. That means you actually have to feel a feeling of love for Hashem. And that can change our lives yeah. when, we, when we understand that. And so a major development over the last couple of years uh, has been then a movement towards forming community, communities of women. Where until now, virtual I was communities, virtual communities, yeah. and it was kind of even real communities. Meaning, over the years, I would I would teach women, and I would have a group. It was almost kind of wrenching for me to say goodbye to them at the end. They graduate, and that was they it. graduate, and I didn't have a structure. I tried to set up a once a month a community. It didn't grow the way that I that I had hoped. I always wanted to create a community because I grew up in a community, right. and I was in the com creating a community here in Beta, and I have a feel for community, and I and I understand it's not only about me and my teaching, but it's about the group being part of a community is so much more than just just the even the dynamic between a, a teacher or a friend but it's 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 a whole lot more and the value of peer counseling of women being able to share with each other is, is, is inestimable value and so the last couple of years i have baruch hashem in in jerusalem community of women that do get together twice a month once a month is for learning and once a month is like for a fun activity we did tambourine making, <laughs> and we uh, we did painting on duck duck eggs. We did like all kinds of really fun things, um, and then we have also like a lot. We have a class once a what once a month, and then I have a virtual community with Jewish workshop that I just began, which is again it's a tremendous for me. It's really fun because one of the limitations of giving a series is that there's a certain time. I'm sure you know what. But when it comes to giving a series, I don't want to I want to cover a certain amount of material and I only have this amount of right. time. And so if women ask me a question and I want to answer, but I this particular class right. was devoted to a certain co topic, I I feel uh, a little bit conflicted. Do I answer the question fully? Do I cover all the material? And I, the next class is going to be full of that material. And so there's a lot to be able to give over. So in the context of, of a series, it was good, I could give over as much as I could give, but when it comes to an ongoing community, right. I can respond to the questions. I know I have a general guideline of, this is the kind of material I want to give over, but I don't have to worry. We're ongoing. I can answer your question fully. I can respond to the questions that are coming in. And that way, the women are able to answer that, have their questions answered fully. And I find that if one person has a question, usually a bunch of other women have the same question. It's not, usually women does, doesn't have a question that's ne never been asked before. Um, and so I can respond to this question. And then when that is completely finished, if another question comes up that needs a lot more treatment, I can create another whole mini-series of six classes that's going to really in-depthly answer the question that you've just answered. And so I really find that the community aspect is more than just having a bunch of women on the line together. But it's about we together are going on a journey where we're, we're experiencing these concepts together and we're learning these concepts together we're going to apply them together and we're going to share the successes together and so again just now that you've heard my journey of community to community yeah. for me that's been very fulfilling and, and so online yeah. you'll create like a facebook group or something where they communicate with each other or how, how does the virtual community persist there's, there's been the facebook hasn't yet been set up there has been talk of doing that right um so whatsapp how are people communicating um, once the class is over once the class is over I need to work more on it. The truth so is what does the community look like outside of the live communities? So outside of the live communities, that mean the virtual community, yeah. there's the online class, is that first of all, every class we dedicate to, to some community member or other, whether they're mm. having a, ha a, a, a simcha or whether they need to, afford, uh, to get better for shalim or something, we dedicate one, the, each class to members of the community so that we share whatever's going on. The women can share their success stories with the other members of the community. They're actually they're putting together a cookbook for the community for in, in honor of Yontif, which is that's another way that they're interacting. Um, we need to be a little bit more creative in it, and there, there are creative ideas being uh, coming up. We just began this journey just around just after after Pesach, like just a, a, a few months ago. So there's more to do, um, but I'm really looking forward to it becoming yeah um, really good. so if somebody wants things. to yeah. get involved what yes. is it just what what's currently available for people is it um, they just find online they'll find a, the next upcoming series and they yeah. just sign up and I assume there's some kind of a fee and you give it once a week for X number of months and then that's yeah. it they're in well so the with Jewish workshops the online community that is a once a week 
It's a once a week class that's that, that's ongoing, and they also we uh, recently they sent, we sent out a workbook. I just yeah I wrote up all kinds of questions with with different kinds of act, like thought activities, yeah. and they 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 printed that out and sent it and send that out. So whoever joins the community gets uh, to join you know a whole program, um, and that's ongoing. And that yeah they could they could find that on my site highhinder.com or through Jewish Workshops, which is um, also they can be found. Workshops, yeah. Um, in addition, I have the whoever's in in Jerusalem. These community events that I that I right. have, they're not only to, only open to people who have ever been in my classes. Ah. Anybody who's in Israel can come along and join. A When's community the next event. one? Uh, it's coming up on the 9th of Elul. Okay, Very yeah, exciting. we're going to be having some fun. And even though I just had a wedding bachelor, my daughter just got married, and so we've, I, I usually have it the week of. Rosh Chodesh, um. the week, the, the week of, but this year, week only because of the, my daughter's wedding, I couldn't do it that week. We're going to be doing it the week after the beginning of Elul. Right. But usually, it's one that we have a once a month fun activity and a once a month learning activity, and they're again they're open to whoever wants to come sit. Wow! Well, and then again, if somebody enrolls in one of your courses, yes. they also will get private consultation time yes. with you yes. as part of that. That's right. They get pri everyone who's in Jewish workshops. The it's called Living Consciously. Uh, that community they get private time on the phone. And anybody, I also have live courses taking place in Jerusalem. I have a new series starting in 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 September, which is going to be becoming our best selves. Uh, it's a it's a tshuva series for the new year. That also comes with private time. I have parenting series that are available. I have dating series that are available. Um, at my site, highhinder.com, there are a bunch of courses and they all come with private time. So, uh, and do you, yes. do you often find yourself, um, when, once you start especially consulting individually, do you often find yourself uh, referring people out to get more in-depth help or therapy and, and things like that? Because I'm sure some people are coming to you with real you yeah. know, crises or psychological issues and yeah. things like that. How do you know kind of when you're, you've reached your limits, so to speak, and when you're not crossing a border into therapeutic treatment? Um, a, lot of, a lot of the Torah's teachings is therapeutic. Right. Um, having said that, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm never right. gonna go anywhere near trying to prescribe drugs, okay? If I see that somebody needs some kind of medication for something, then I will encourage them to go and see somebody yeah. who's professional. Uh, in many cases, I will encourage a woman who's a little too cerebral to have some kind of uh, m massage therapy mm. or sacrocranial therapy. Sometimes reflexology has helped to bring t the teachings in a more grounded way. Mm -hmm. So supplementary treatments right. can often be very What about marriage effective. counseling, for example, if she's in a difficult marriage and you know, that kind of a thing? You're hearing a silence here. I don't know. <laughs> Mar marriage counseling can often create a lot more problems than it solves. Interesting. Um, so it would have to be somebody really good. Right. So again, if it's somebody really, really good, then yes. But I, uh, again. You tread carefully. Yeah. And the truth is, I encourage people if they really feel that they need a lot of help. But I've had many women who came to me and said, I got more from taking your course than I got out of 10 years of therapy. Right. So many women have told me that. Even though it's not therapy, but it's so therapeutic. The right. process is a therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. So if a, if a woman finds that in addition it's helpful for her to have a personal therapist and a coach or whatever she needs, then I'm absolutely supportive. I would never say give up whatever you're doing right. right now. Keep what you're doing right now, and you may find the need to drop it as you go along and you find you don't no longer need it. But if it's supplementing right now and it's helpful, another person to talk to sometimes is just always helpful in a woman's life where she just needs another person to listen to her. Right. Um, but again, clearly there are going to be you know, situations that, that are, are beyond my reach. But the, the Torah itself is so therapeutic when we apply it. Um, and Hashem will guide us. I, I, I truly believe that when, when a woman trusts Hashem, Hashem is going to be healing, that He will open up the doors to the right messenger. Because even if a person is ready for therapy, or wants therapy, getting the right one sure. can be a very tedious, tedious mission. But mm. when we have learned really how to trust, and to really be guided by Hashem, then we also, the doors are also open to the right messengers as well. So yeah. I have two final questions. Yeah. Uh, number one is kind of a, uh, you know, for my personal uh, reality, a lot don't hear about women, but mm. what about the men in the world? Is there anything out there for them that's, that's similar? Uh, do you think men need this 
as much or do they need a different version of this of course generalizing right there are many men that have more mm-hmm. you know emotional types of needs and and so forth that we're talking about in the general sense but is that something your husband does or uh, you or do you know of others doing this kind of work for men um, or do they even again in your assessment need yeah. it uh, I have to say that as a religious just woman I just don't have exposure to men I, I really don't. I, I really, I have a lot of experience with thousands of Jewish women around the world. I do not have experience. I don't know what men you know, are going through to, size, the same, yeah. to the same extent at all. Uh, to a very limited degree, this woman says, please work with my son, and so I have. And this woman says, can you come out and also listen? And so I have had married couples take my course together, and so I've had, to a very limited degree, also been helping husbands through their wives or helping the sons with their mothers in that, in that mm-hmm. degree. And um, my husband did create a small series for men uh, uh, recorded um, at a certain uh, point he decided it was not it was not going to be uh, his direction it Got wasn't it. what he wanted to do and so I don't presently know anyone who's doing exactly what I'm doing okay so for all our listeners out there uh, that's it that's an invitation for the right person to step <laughs> forward and, and, and make this happen uh-huh. um, and my final question is yeah you, know, you mentioned back a bit ago that you spent several years once you had that sort of uh, initial overwhelming experience yeah. with the women yeah. in very typical Jewish fashion right. attacking every Absolutely. angle and Tell skeptical and cynical and what's the source and right. you know of course we don't accept anything right. um, so once you did go through that research project and spent the years yeah. compiling sources yeah. and you know authenticating exactly. you know and, and anchoring these practices in real Jewish text yeah. Has there been thought of producing that as a book um, and putting those sources together, um, not just a workbook or a guidebook right. that you send the women, but a right. proper full book that would that would uh, express your methodology, but also uh, include the the myriad sources that you have discovered? Because I think a lot of people would be suspect of this as as an authentic Jewish pathway, right. at least in certain segments of the community. Right. So including that, I think, would be important. Yeah. Have you considered doing something like that? Um, I definitely have considered it. I have been so busy with women that I haven't made it a priority. And the truth is, in my mind, I have at least 10 different books. Right. I wouldn't know which one to start with because there's so many different well, things I think it's, it's, I think the general, the general <laughs> Jewish positive thinking, right? The, the yeah. general kind the of approach. that we started with. Yeah. The truth is, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely something that could be, could be a project for the future. Yeah. Um, I know that Shem will guide me to when is the right time to come and to the, 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 the sources, that it will all become clear about when is, when is the time to write it, right. what exactly to write. I imagine the material is already organized in some It really way. It is, yeah. it really actually so it's is. it's just a question of yeah. closing, you know, take, crossing that Rubicon, right. to, closing the circle, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, well, you have my vote, and um, <laughs> I, I would love to buy it, even if it's geared towards women. Um, I'm sure we can find some ways to uh, adapt it. Uh, in any event, yeah. thank you so much, Chaya and Alan, for your amazing uh, inspiration and for sharing of your time in this terribly or wonderfully I should say busy week when your daughter got married two days ago Uh, we're so so grateful for you sharing of your time and your wisdom with us today thank you thank you so much for having me I really really enjoyed answering your questions it's been a lot of fun this has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes Stitcher or wherever you consume podcasts find us on social media at Jews You Should Know If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.